Hey everybody, Marshall here. You probably know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> uh, this episode of The Outfield Excursions, where Rish and I talk about The Man Who Knew Too Much, directed by Alfred Hitchcock from 1934, has been on the Patreon for over a month. And I just put up an episode where we talk about the 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, also directed by Alfred Hitchcock starring Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. And so that's there for you to listen to. You can listen to these back-to-back, but only if you go over to patreon.com slash journeyinto and uh, subscribe over there at at least the $1 a month level. I'd love to see you over there and get a lot of extra stuff and become part of the community over there, vote on polls, stuff like that. Uh, But for now, I'll leave you alone and let you enjoy this latest episode on the main feed. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of the Outfield Excursions here on the Journey Into Podcast. My name is Marshall Latham, and I'm here with Rish Outfield. Hello, Marshall. <laughs> I am happy to be on the show with you tonight. Okay, I, I've I've never tried a Peter Lorre impersonation, and I, I doubt I'll ever try again. <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> he has just this wonderful uh, musical way of talking. He does. Uh, yeah, this is Rich Outfield, and you just mentioned that this is going to be the oldest movie we've done on this show, and we'd have to try extra hard to to beat it. Yeah, this is the man who knew too much. Uh, by Alfred Hitchcock, the first version of it that he did in uh, England, and it was from 1934. I think that's the earliest show that we have covered here on the Outfield Excursions. Uh, would that movie Kin be the 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 most recent? Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Oh no, I take that back. I guess Vast of Night would probably be the most recent. That was uh, 2019. So, uh, you know, I just wanted to set the stage a tiny bit on this. So so uh, Hitchcock remade The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1956 back uh, here in, in America. But when he made this in 34, according to his filmography, it was his 19th full-length film. He had made half a dozen silent films. And then in 1929, he made his first talkie uh, called Blackmail, followed by Juno and the Paycock, Murder! Elstree Calling, The Skin Game, Mary, Rich and Strange, Number 17, and Waltzes from Vienna. And then then we got Man Who Knew Too Much. And this was the first really successful Hitchcock, what would you say? Hit? Uh, Well, more of an international hit. You know, it's something that got uh, attention elsewhere other than just in Great Britain. And uh, the next movie he made after this was The 39 Steps. And that was a uh, an international blockbuster. Right. I guess uh, I was going to say this movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, was the only British film that I had seen of Alfred Hitchcock's. All the other ones I had watched were American films. 
but I, I have seen the 39 steps. For, so I guess this is my second British film that I've seen of his. Have, have you not seen The Lady Vanishes? I have not seen that one. Okay, well, that one is excellent. I, I saw that just over the summer, and I just, I loved it. I couldn't believe how modern it felt and timeless in a way. It's like like you could remake that today, and you would only have to change a little bit. And that one was such a big hit, that, that and that was 1938, that the Hollywood studios offered Hitchcock work here with a much more expansive budget and with, you know, Hollywood stars and the studios at, at his beck and call. So he and Alma moved to Los Angeles after that. But yeah, this was the one where people over here, at least, first started to hear his name. And had you seen this one before 2021? No, this is my first viewing of it. I, I've seen the American one with Jimmy Stewart in it a couple different times. But no, I had never seen this one. I knew it was out there, but I had never seen it before. I saw the the Jimmy Stewart Man Who Knew Too Much as a little boy. My dad would rent a VHS machine, a, a VCR, uh, from the little video store in the town where he worked. And every week he would bring a v, the VCR and a movie. And one of the movies we watched was that one. <clears throat> and then a couple of years later, in the TV guide... Uh, PBS was showing The Man Who Knew Too Much. And, oh. and I said, oh, I remember that. So I, I turned it on and it was this. It was the, 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 the original, the 1930s version. And I watched like five minutes before I got bored. <laughs> but I had seen, I was familiar with it. It was just so confusing to me as a kid yeah. that it said, you know, that it was Alfred Hitchcock's movie. It had the same title, but nope. <laughs> Yeah, and Alfred Hitchcock was looking to do something different. Um, he felt that Waltz's from Vienna was a very bad movie, and uh, he wanted to do something different. And so he did. <laughs> this was kind of the, the one of his first thrillers, I believe. I, don't, I haven't seen the earlier ones, um, but this is the first time he'd kind of done a thriller-type movie. Yeah, it feels like a Hitchcock movie. You know, when we hear the word thriller, it's sort of been co-opted by Michael Jackson. But before then, that was what people used for the ter- for for a suspense movie, for a movie that was not a horror movie, but it was tense. There was danger. There was intrigue, the threat of violence, and and this feels like what Hitchcock would be known for for the rest of his life. I, I guess we should talk about the plot of the movie. <laughs> I Well, uh, you had said, which one was, what year was his first talkie? First voice? 29. 29. Okay, so we're five years after that. Um, the beginning of this movie, it the use of sound is so different than what I'm used to that it almost felt like a silent movie, like this was one of the first movies where they had sound in it because the sound was kind of strange especially at the beginning of the movie and i thought wow this is almost like a silent movie only every once in a while somebody's talking but then after the opening scene it it picked up and everybody was talking and it felt regular but what was well, the first scene that you're talking about is that in where they're having the, the rifle shooting competition. They're up in the, the Swiss Alps or something. Yeah, they're in the Swiss Alps. And 
And the first the first scene is they're watching ski jumping, and you see the a man with his daughter, and she has a little dog, and the dog gets away from her and runs out onto the ski track, and she goes out after the dog, and the skier is coming down the hill. But you can tell it's it's a group of people standing in front of a screen that's showing the ski jumper or whatever. But then it goes to a shot, process shot of the skier. And he kind of puts his hands over his face and, ah, I'm going to run into her. Yeah, it, it just felt really, and the, the sound, like it was silent until after he crashed. And then uh, a bunch of people, like a group of people, were helping him up. And, and some of them had fallen down themselves. And then the, then the talking kind of started. But, uh, yeah, the sound was kind of strange in that first scene. But right away, we're we're introduced to several of the key players. Yeah, we we have uh, Bob Lawrence with his daughter uh, in that first scene, and then the skier was actually uh, their friend Louis. So the skier was the Frenchman. Yeah, yeah, he was the their friend, and then we're also introduced right there to the Peter Laurie character, um, and they just kind of you know, get up from the snow and are kind of laughing about it and just making some small talk with each other. But when I watched it a second time after having seen the movie, at least this opening scene, I noticed that Peter Laurie is looking at uh, Louis very suspiciously and Louis kind of looks at him a little suspiciously. I didn't notice that the first time around. I was just trying to get oriented with the movie. But it's just kind of interesting how... Right away, right from the beginning, they're setting up these characters and kind of giving you hints of what might be to come. Um, But then after that, it goes to what you were talking about with the skeet shooting competition over by the lodge. If you want to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that I'm the best person to talk about all this because it sounds like you remember it a heck of a lot better than I do. And I, I wanted to say that I had it on a compilation disc of several Alfred Hitchcock films and the quality was was really really bad. I'm just looking right here on YouTube and you can watch it on YouTube and it says HD but I don't believe that but still <laughs> it's a it's a dozen times better than the quality that I watched it in. Oh okay. Yeah, it almost makes me want to just pause this and say, hey, let me talk to you again in an hour and uh, 15 minutes. Because, yeah, I had no memory of Peter Lorre being introduced before the tension starts. It's just really strange that I, I mean, it was yesterday that I I watched it, or two days, Monday, I guess. Uh, Today is Wednesday. And I honestly thought that the movie started with them at the skeet shooting competition. But I guess I can describe the skeet shooting competition. So there's a, a male marksman, I guess is what I'll use. And then Jill, Jill Lawrence, who is the, the heroine of the movie. And she's the female marksman. And there's a little bit of banter of, you know, how good each one of them is. She fires first. They've got, you know, one of those machines, clay pigeon throwing machines. Let's like a little trebuchet or something. And uh, just as it fires into the air, Peter Laurie's watch has this little chime that it plays, like a little musical 
what, how would you describe it? it, it just uh, like a little jingle kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Which I'm assuming happens on the hour or something like that. And that distracts her enough to where she misses the the clay pigeon, right? Yes. Yeah, he he shows his watch to the to the daughter, to the little girl, and it goes off and then that that noise distracts her. Okay. And so uh then the the her competitor, he gets his turn and he he, he wins. And I, I guess they're just establishing that she knows how to shoot. I'm not really sure what's going on here because I just <laughs> I only saw it the one time. It is a little strange it, I, when I was watching it for the first time, and I've only seen it once. I just watched the beginning again earlier today. Yeah, I was kind of having a hard time getting oriented on, you know, why are we here? What are they doing? Is this a common thing? Just kind of getting used to the the feel of it, I guess. But even here, they're setting up the stage because the marksman that Jill is going up against is Ramon Levine. That that's the name of the character, and you know there is this banter back and forth. But she says, "Well, you're a great shot, and I would know," kind of thing. And then her and Bob kind of talk back and forth, and then Louis shows up. And I guess he's a great friends because there's this whole thing about, I'm going to leave you for another man. And I don't know. It just felt very British at this point where there's this back and forth between the husband and the wife and not knowing who these people are. It just seemed kind of odd to me. But then later on, there's a, there in the evening, there's a, a dance or there's dancing and eating and Jill and Louis are, are out dancing on the floor and Bob and I can't remember what's the little girl's name I think she's Betty Betty okay yeah Betty uh so Bob and Betty are kind of at the table watching on and all of a sudden there's a shot that goes through the window of the chalet where they're dancing and then Louis notices that he's been shot <laughs> and as he's dying very gallantly he just kind of slowly gets down on one knee and and <laughs> he's talking to Jill and he's he starts telling her that uh there's a message in a brush in his room and he she needs to tell Bob to go get this message and get it to the British consulate and he tells her all this and then he dies and sorry th- this death scene is so I mean I know he's not a British character he's a French character but he's so like stiff upper lip <laughs> where he he looks down at his jacket and the blood there's blood coming out and and he goes I'm sorry <laughs> it's just <laughs> oh if it, he says oh look I'm sorry and then he <laughs> sort of goes down on one knee <laughs> <laughs> he's just got it's like the most dignified death imaginable and yeah he he tells her this but the thing that's strange is that nobody else reacts people aren't screaming or there's just a bunch of people standing around and some people are still dancing and it's just like and i guess you wouldn't think that the man had just been fatally shot because <laughs> because he slowly goes down and then and then a crowd gathers, and uh, did did they establish who the guy was? Did they establish that he was a diplomat or a, an agent or, or just a friend of theirs? No, there none of that had been explained yet at this point. 
It was just a friend of, of the family. But the, the sound, again, was kind of weird at this point. I don't know if it's just because the movie, you know, has aged and, you know, was restored at a point where some of the sound had gone out here and there. But the, the sound of the gunshot coming through the window was very quiet. And I, I would think that, that would cause more of a stir and more people would realize that a gunshot had come through. But, uh, yeah. It, but it, they do establish, right, that it was the marksman that did it. He's far, far away, and all the we hear is the little clink yep. of the bullet going through the glass. Yeah, we don't know at that time, but they do establish fairly soon that it that it was him that killed Louis. Okay, so after that, so it's like like the police come, and Bob runs off. Uh, he goes to Louis's room, or, or uh, am I am I getting this right? Yep. Jill tells Bob what. Louis said before he died. So Bob goes up there and goes into Louis's room and he's searching. He's looking for the, is it the hairbrush? Yeah, he's just looking for any kind of a brush. And the hairbrush turns out to be hollow and inside it is a wrapped up piece of paper that says, Wapping George Barber Make Contact Albert Hall March 21st. I don't know. I said George Barber. It's G Barber. G Barber. <laughs> oh, it was a it was a shaving brush, is what it was. Okay, and uh, so the authorities come and they catch him walking out, right? Yes. And he, uh, they, they, they want it. They, they're questioning him, and he, he has some sort of comical explanation uh, where obviously he's lying, and he's just like, ah, oh yes, well it's very, very. Uh, easy answer to to uh, question to answer rather. Um, uh, would would you mind getting the British consul on the phone for me? And they says yes, yes, but but we need to know what you were doing in there. And he says, oh yes, yes, of course, I I'd be happy to. Let's let's like, walk with me. And he never actually answers their question. Right. And and <laughs> um, and Ramon had followed him up before the police showed up. You know, it was kind of like okay. You know, give it to me. I know you. I know you got something out of there. I need to need to have it. Oh, okay. All right. So, so maybe I'm I'm misremembering it. I really need to just be quiet and let you tell the story of the film because, <laughs> yeah, he's being questioned by the police and a waiter or or uh, messenger boy comes right up and interrupts and says, "There's there's a a note for you, sir," and hands it to Bob. And the note says, do you remember what it says? Well, not exactly, but he, he reads the note and he gets all serious and his wife is being questioned in the other room and they won't let him in there. But he goes in there and he says, oh, I have to tell my wife, I have to give her a message. And so he starts making up this thing about, you know, the, the Clemens can't come to dinner. So we're going to have to make other arrangements. And he gives her the note and she reads it. And it says, pretty much, if you want to see your daughter alive again, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell them anything. Yep. Okay. And then she kind of faints or, you know, gets weak in the knees and starts to fall down. (laughs) And and then uh, Bob grabs the note from her hand and gets it into the fire before the uh, police can see it. Yeah, I gotta say these these police are so ineffectual. <laughs> they they they're just not capable at all. But but maybe it's meant to be funny. I I don't know. The, 
Yeah, it's hard to know the, the sensibilities, you know, like, was the banter humorous, you know, were, were the things that were going on, were, would they be appreciated in that time kind of thing? I, I have no sense for that. And of course, you know, again, being an American watching a British film, you know, I'm sure there's things I'm going to miss. But then we do see Ramon with his hand over Betty's mouth and they're on a sleigh going away from the ski area. You know, obviously he's kidnapped her to keep Bob and Jill quiet. Right. And the next scene is in London. Right. There, uh, I think, is it the British police are questioning Bob? Yes. And, and they say, you and your wife came back from Switzerland, but your daughter didn't come with you. He has an excuse for that, right? Where is she? Stay with her aunt. Oh, what's his aunt's name? <laughs> Mary. And where is she staying with his aunt? In Paris. Street and number? Uh, it's a rather complicated French name, rather difficult for an English person to remember, I'm afraid. Mm. One for you. Uh, thank you. Oh, by the way, why were you so upset the night you left Switzerland? I'm not aware that I was upset. Was it because your child had been kidnapped? And eventually they, you know, they're, they're leaving or whatever. We, we do have another quick little scene with Jill in another room with Clive, who is her brother or something. He's, he's kind of a family relative that stays with them or whatever. And, and they're talking about Betty and how they miss her and that kind of thing. But then, you know, Bob gets the police to go away shoes him out the door and then he comes back into the living room to get a drink or whatever and there's another guy sitting in the living room and he's like oh i'm i'm sorry uh you haven't left yet you know let me help you out or whatever and then this this guy says oh I, i'm not with the police mr lawrence i'm i work for was it like the foreign service or something like that? The foreign office, the, yes. The foreign office. <laughs> <laughs> he says, your friend Louis worked for us too. He was one of our men. Pretty much said he was on to them too. He says, I I know that, that you have information from him, but your daughter has been kidnapped. And so he pretty much has them dead to rights. And Jill comes in and, and uh, oh, please, please, please don't say anything, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get a phone call in the middle of this little interview and it's a woman on the phone that uh again highly polite <laughs> says oh i'm sorry i didn't want to disrupt your your meeting with the the, the man from the foreign office but <laughs> <laughs> i just wanted to remind you that we have your daughter and if if you want to see her alive you, you won't say a thing and then they they let them talk to Betty, and so they know she's alive. This, this part I do kind of remember. The, the, the guy from the foreign office says, uh, we really need to know what was written on that piece of paper. Imagine if you had been told in 1914 that an archduke was going to be assassinated, and you could have prevented that. Imagine, you know, all of the suffering and the, the, the loss of life that could have been prevented. Tell me, in June 1914, had you ever heard of a place called Sarajevo? Of course you hadn't. I doubt if you'd even heard of the Archduke Ferdinand. But in a month's time, because a man you'd never heard of killed another man you'd never heard of, in a place you'd never heard of, this country was at war. 
But I... Don't tell him, Bob. I'm sorry, Mr. Gibson, but we're not interested. What you've told us may be true, but our child's in danger. That comes first. It must come first. You see that, don't you? Mrs. Lawrence, do you realize the type of man we're dealing with? Do you think they draw the line at murder? Besides, how do you know the child's alive? How do you know he haven't... And that's when the phone rings, right? Right. So after the phone call, this foreign office agent named Gibson, you know, he says, well, can you trace the call? And Bob says, oh, no, the, the telephone people will, will never do that. And he says, oh, hold on. So he got on and got a hold of somebody, and they traced the call to Wapping. And, you know, when I read that note, because I even paused the, the movie when he first looked at the note that was in the brush, and I, I read it, and I didn't really understand it, but one of the things at the top of the list was Wapping. And I guess that's an area of London. So the phone call came from a phone booth in, in Wapping. And so Gibson's off. He's going to go and get his agents, and they're going to go to Wapping to see if they can find these guys. And then as soon as they leave, Clive says to Bob, we're leaving too, aren't we? And he's like, yes, yes, we are. And uh, Jill's like, what? What? Where are you going? What? Why are you leaving? And, and he's like, well, if they do end up finding the perpetrators, they're going to think we let them to them. You know, so we have to go and figure it out ourselves or whatever. So they're now they're on the case as as well as the foreign office. And so they Clive and Bob head off for for whopping. Then we get a, a very amusing scene. I thought it was amusing anyway. They're standing outside of a dentist's office. Is it right by the the phone booth where the call came? Yeah, I believe so. And isn't the name of the doctor what was it? G something Oh, okay, so the name on the piece of paper is the same as the name of this dentist? Yeah, I believe that they, they see that clue. Okay. And so then Bob says to Clive, How, let me look at your teeth. So they're going to go in, I guess, to the to the dentist and uh, hope somebody shows up. Right? I wasn't quite sure what their plan was. I know what happened. but So they go into this dentist and, and the dentist... Uh, looks at Clive and takes him in the back room and is uh, working on his tooth or whatever, and you can hear him screaming kind of in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but he comes out immediately. Like, yeah. he's been in there for 45 seconds, and he's holding, like, a little piece of cotton to where the tooth, I guess, have been yanked out, <laughs> and and they haven't found what they needed. And so his partner is just like, oh, oh, doctor, before, before you go, I, I have a bit of a toothache myself, if you wouldn't mind looking at my teeth. <laughs> so he goes in there and sits down in the chair. <laughs> and while he's in the chair, we hear, the, we hear Peter Laurie's watch make its little noise again. And he hears it, and I'm, I'm assuming he remembers it, he recognizes it. Yes, you're right. Not yet. And he looks over and does he see Peter Lorre? Who? Well, Peter. Yeah, somebody comes in the room, and then he looks over and it's Peter Lorre, or Abbott, I guess is the character's name. And so then Peter Lorre goes across the room and into another door, some office or something like that. And then the dentist, I guess, is kind of on to. Bob, because he's asking him some of the questions about where did you come from? Oh, that train isn't due until tomorrow, or that boat isn't in until tomorrow. And so he's kind of figured out that, that Bob is up to something. 
So he's he's going to gas Bob and put him under. <laughs> but then Bob reaches up and slowly grabs the guy's neck. And uh, he starts choking him as he's putting the gas mask on him, which I thought was really funny because it's like a uh, uh, a battle of who can, who will pass out first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Bob stands up. Bob turns turns out to be much bigger than the dentist and he pushes the dentist into the chair and then he sticks the knockout, the nozzle over the dentist's mouth and knocks him out. Uh, and that was a scene that worked really, really well. I thought so. Yeah. And then he, you know, he puts on the, he puts on the dentist coat, and uh, puts his glasses on, and he hears somebody coming up the stairs. So he pretends to be the dentist working on um, this other guy, and then Ramon comes in the room. Of course, Bob looks distracted, and kind of, he had shined a light onto the door so that, you know, he couldn't be seen very well. And then, you know, he asks the same question, is is he here yet? And he kind of points over to the room where Peter Laurie is. And Peter Laurie comes out and they're talking and he's listening to their conversation. And It is the last time I let myself be smuggled into this country for you or anybody else. You will be smuggled, my friend, when, how, and where I'm pleased for you to be smuggled. Yes? It's your fault for having such a wonderful aim to your gun. You must pay the price of your genius. Everything ready for tonight? I have arranged a box for you. Most conveniently placed. Any trouble with the charming Miss Lawrence? Bob kind of drops the tool that he's working on, but he keeps uh, working on the guy's teeth. And they continue their conversation, but are kind of vague about where the girl is. And then they leave the dentist's office. And, of course, then then Bob, you know, takes off all the stuff. And they they run out the door to see if they can uh, find out where they are. He asks Clive, you know, did you see where they went? Okay, so they, they follow these guys and they think that they went into a church. And, but they're not sure. Uh, and they look at the sign of the church and it's got a symbol of the rising sun on it. And they look on the little piece of paper that Bob retrieved from the, the shaving brush. And it has that symbol on it. It has a drawing of the rising sun. And so they know that this is the place they, they go inside and there are church services going on. And they say that they're sun worshipers, that they're part of like a sun worshiping cult and they'll probably (laughs) have no clothes on, but inside the, the church, it just seems like just like an old-fashioned, I don't know, mass or something that's going on. It's all women in the congregation, I thought. Uh, but they're all dressed, and uh, they're singing like a hymn, and and the, there's a, a, a preacher. But it was a woman preacher, right? Yeah, she was in the back, and then she moved more toward the front after she saw those two guys come in the room. And then they're kind of talking, singing the hymn, but uh, talking to each other in the tune of the song. And then once the song's over, um, the woman does get up in front of the congregation and she says, For those of you who haven't been with us before, who haven't joined the first circle of the ray of the sun or something like that. (laughs) Um, you might not know what this is all about, 
And so, you know, let me explain it to you. And she asks somebody to come up who hasn't been initiated yet. Uh, so it seemed more and more to be like a like a cult or a fraternity. Well, I guess it wouldn't be a fraternity, but, uh, you know, like a Mason kind of thing where you, you had different levels or, or whatever. But anyway, she has, so Clive volunteers or gets volunteered or to go up and she pretty much puts them, she says it's a experiment in trust or something like that. And she puts them in a, she pretty much hypnotizes them, puts them in a trance. Then after that's done, she says, okay, all, all of those of you who haven't, who aren't part of the fifth circle or third circle or whatever it is of the ray of the light, uh, please, please leave us now. And so most of the people in the room get up to leave. And Bob is kind of unsure what to do, but he gets up to leave. And then uh, this older lady comes up to him and she says, Oh, you're not going to leave your friend, are you? And he looks down and she's got a gun on him. And he's like, uh, no, no. And again, Bob, Bob is very British. He's very, you know, he takes everything in stride and just kind of makes light of it. Um, show puts it puts on a good show and so anyway he he sits down with her and and after everybody leaves then peter laurie comes out and starts to talk to him and he he mentions him dropping the tool he says oh you should be more careful and not be such a fatherly figure or some or father have fatherly emotions and drop your tool when your daughter is mentioned or something so he was on to him at that point and somehow they end up starting to throw chairs at each other. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> it was like a Geraldo uh, episode or something. So yeah, they're, they're in a big fight and they're they're throwing pews and chairs back and forth at each other. So there's like, I don't know, four guys and Ramon uh, comes out too. And uh, he's trying to fend them off and he's trying to wake up Clive, who's still in a trance at the at the front of the room, and eventually Clive kind of wakes up and he says, "Get out the window, go tell Jill." Oh, he he sees when he's fighting with Ramon, he sees that he, that in his coat pocket he has a an invitation to Albert Hall uh, for a concert, and Albert H or something like that, A Hall maybe was uh, written on the, the paper that he got from Louise Brush. And so he, he puts it together that that's where this uh, assassination is going to take place. And so he t- he yells to Clive, you know, get out the window and tell Jill to go to Albert Hall and and stop it. And so eventually Clive does, is, does manage to sneak out the window. Uh, Bob's kind of trying to get out too, right behind him. Um, but he, I think he gets hit with another chair or something like that and falls over. And so he he's captured, but Clive gets away. There's a really, really nice Hitchcockian scene uh, after that where the bad guys decide to call Jill at home and tell her if she shows up at the Royal Albert Hall, she, you know, they'll kill the daughter. So the the, the woman that's the head of the cult is calling and they show that the phone rings and and Jill answers the phone 
but it's actually Clive from a phone booth calling one second earlier. And he gets a hold of Jill and tells her it's it wasn't a man's name. It's the Albert Hall. You need to go to the Albert Hall. That's where it's going to happen. And then they cut back to the woman and she's on the phone and uh, the, the maid answers the phone and says, oh, we're, I'm sorry, Mrs. Anderson just left. Or sorry, Mrs. Lawrence just left. Uh, but I thought that that was a really nice scene where, you know, it's a race against time and we don't know who has gotten her on the phone first, which was really cool. So, she, yeah, she's already left and they've thrown uh, Bob in. I, I don't know if he's in a cell. He's just in a room and he's being guarded, right? Yeah, yeah, he's just in the church. Yeah, so I guess the the next big thing is that uh, Jill does go to the Albert Hall and she sees the dignitaries there. I don't even know if we know who it was that was going to be assassinated, but yeah, I don't think they ever say what his na- what his position or what nationality he is is. He's just one of those guys up in one of the opera boxes, you know. Yeah, and she sees him down in the lobby, and she sees Gibson or whatever in the agents, and she she wants to go to them, but Ramon uh, comes up from behind her and kind of she sees who it is, and then he hands her this little brooch of a skier, and we didn't talk about it, but in the one of the opening scenes, Jill gives Betty the this brooch. And he was there to see it or whatever. So it's a message to her that they still have Betty and she better not do anything. Um, and so she almost goes up to the agents, but then she just goes and, and sits in the audience. And the music starts to play. She starts to look around and she sees where the the diplomat is. And he's really getting into the music and then she kind of looks around there's this empty box but she sees movement from behind the curtains and somebody's there and so she realizes that's where Ramon is and that he's going to kill this guy shoot him earlier uh, before she got to the hall Peter Laurie played a record of the song that was going to be played and he told Ramon exactly when to shoot because the gunshot wouldn't be heard over the crescendo or whatever of the music yeah there's a moment where there's a crash of cymbals at the end of the song right and that covers up the sound of the gunshot it's really well done because they set it up exactly what is going to happen and then we get like a four or five minute sequence of the concert being played and it's very tense because jill doesn't know what she's looking for and the music is going the song is going (laughs) And yeah, eventually we see the barrel of a pistol come through the curtains there, you know, and take aim. Uh, Does Jill see it? I don't don't quite know. At that point, she was just kind of distraught and crying, and her vision was kind of blurring (laughs) the camera through her eyes. You could see it blurring. And so she doesn't know what to do, but she knows that, you know, if she doesn't do something, he's going to be killed. And you can hear the music swelling, and they, they show the guys picking up the cymbals, getting ready to hit it. The, the drummer gets ready to, to bang, and oh, there's a gong in there too. So you see all this setting up, and it's just building up. And so just either at the same time or just before the crescendo of the music, 
she just stands up and screams. It went off all right. I hope so for all our sakes. Uh, Peter Laurie and everybody is listening to the radio, and so they hear the crescendo, and they say, oh, that seemed to go well. But they also heard the scream, and uh, Bob, you know, recognized, I think, Jill's scream. So, and it shows the, the diplomat, you know, he's he's down. It looks like he's been killed. Jill kind of stands up and, and runs out, and she sees Ramon leaving, and she tells the agents, there he is, he's getting away. And so they kind of follow him out and say, follow that car. And so, you know, she's <laughs> she's done it, right? She's at least uh, done something to stop it. And then uh, we learn when Ramon comes back, they're, they're listening to the radio, and they learned that there was an attempted murder on the diplomat, but it was just a flesh wound, and he'll be okay, and he's returning home now. And so <laughs> Peter Laurie's just kind of quietly looking at Ramon, uh, and he says, Ah, oh, it must have been the, the woman's scream. And he says, Were you followed? He says, no, that nobody could have followed me. They didn't know it was me or where I was going. And then so Peter Laurie goes and looks out the window. He can tell that there's policemen or agents or whatever uh, casing the place where they're at. And so he knows that Ramon was followed. Um, but, but, you know, through this whole thing, Peter Laurie is just really cool and really, you know, kind of calm and, and even laughs at different things. Uh, but you can tell, you know, that he's really upset at this point, but he doesn't really, he still kind of plays it cool. And he says, okay, well, we're going to have to dig in or, or whatever. And it becomes this big standoff between the police and Peter Laurie's gang in, in the church. And that it's a shootout, you know, they're, they're shooting back and forth at each other. And it goes on for quite a while and it shows the police and where they're getting the guns from and they kind of their plan and what they're going to do. And Jill's there now. She... She's with the police. Eventually, I think Bob and Betty get together. But in all the the chaos, they try to escape. Ramon sees them escaping. They're going out this window out onto the roof. And Betty gets out there. But Bob has to stay behind to try to stop Ramon. I think Ramon shoots him at that point. And so he falls down, and then Ramon follows Betty out onto the the roof, and she's kind of walking away from him, going down a ladder to another part of the roof and trying to get away from him, and he's following her. She's going to run out of space eventually, and he's going to catch up to her. And the the police see what's going on. They notice her, and they say, Hey, there's a girl up there. Can you get the shot? And no, I might hit the girl. I don't want to take the chance. And so, he, you know, Ramon is getting closer and closer to Betty and the tension is building or whatever. And then you hear a gunshot and Ramon falls down. Jill had grabbed the gun from the police officer and she shot him, um, which was kind of cool. I thought that uh, that she got to be part of the action as well. And it harkened back to the beginning of the movie where she was a sharpshooter going against Ramon um, so yeah, I thought that was that was kind of cool how all that worked out. Yeah, he does fall off the rooftop, and uh, it it's funny because Jill is in like her opera outfit, you know, with a, a fur coat and all that, and she's got this rifle in her hand. 
But yeah, you're right. I mean, they set that up really, really well. And then she got to save her own child with her marksmanship, which I thought was was very well done and unexpected. You know, a lot of times the women just have to sit back and and cringe and hope to be rescued. Yeah, you know, and she was kind of sidelined there for quite a bit of the movie. But, you know, she's the one that goes to the opera and stops the assassination. She's the one that shoots Ramon. So, you know, it's kind of... She gets to do a lot, which is, I don't know if that was typical for the time in in uh, British movies or, or not. You know, we just hear so much about America in the 40s, 50s, and 60s where, you know, the, the women are overshadowed by the men. But I don't know if that was typical back in the 30s or not. Uh, so her dad is all right. He has been shot, but he doesn't seem any worse for wear. Maybe he's just shot in the arm or something. They go in there, all the the police rush the building, and they go into a room, and we hear Peter Lorre's watch make its little chime, and it, he was hiding behind the door, and I thought that one of the cops shot him, uh, but in re-watching it, uh, I guess it's clear that he has killed himself. And yeah, he falls over dead, and then uh, Betty... And and Jill and Bob are all reunited, and and that's the the end. Yeah, yeah. I think the running time on the movie was only a, an hour and ten minutes. I think it was about an hour fifteen, but that was probably typical of movies at the time too. Yeah, I I liked it quite a bit, especially once I got into it. You know, the beginning of the movie, I was a little bit disoriented, like I said, but the more I got into it, you know, and the, and the more the the intrigue started to happen. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was it was interesting to see just the differences in the acting and the like I was saying, Bob throughout the whole thing was was very stiff upper lip, make the best of the situation. And then Peter Laurie, I <laughs> I I really enjoyed him in this. And tell Mrs. Lawrence a little Betty and her husband are very well. Anything else? Tell her they may soon be leaving us. Leaving us for a long, long journey. How is it that Shakespeare says? From which no traveler returns. Great poet. Um, Apparently, this was his first English-speaking movie that he had done. He, He was known, he was an Austrian actor on the stage, mostly. And one of the first people he met when he came to London or England was Alfred Hitchcock. And he smiled a lot and nodded his head. And and um, Alfred Hitchcock didn't really catch on that, you know, English wasn't really his his language. And I guess a lot of the acting that he did on this was was phonetically learning the English um, but I couldn't tell that by watching the movie. I thought he did a a great job. So, uh, but that I was reading up on Peter Lorre and and kind of the history of this movie, and uh, that was one of the things that that they said that this was his first English speaking role that he had had. But later, when he becomes a star in like uh, Maltese Falcon and and flicks like that. Casablanca. Casablanca. He speaks English then? I guess once you move to the country, you're forced to learn it. 
Right. But it's just, uh, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, he ha- obviously has an accent and he's meant to be a scary foreigner. He's got this big scar over one eyebrow and this right. big patch of like white on his hair, you know, like where uh, he's had head trauma and the hair grows in white, Yeah, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, I didn't realize that uh, it was phonetic English he was speaking. I thought he was in more Alfred Hitchcock movies, but I guess he was only in uh, one other uh, secret agent in 1936. He was in that one. But that, that was the only uh, two movies that he was in. I thought he was in another, a different one, um, but maybe I'm misremembering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know him as, a, as one of the horror stars, one of the universal guys. Uh, he was in... Um, the Raven. He was in Tales of Terror. I mean, famously, he was in M back in Germany in 1931. I wonder if he has the same weird voice when he's speaking Hungarian or when he's speaking German. I was trying to look for the cameo, the Hitchcock cameo that that he. I didn't know how early he started to do that. He did do um, it even in this movie. I just didn't notice it. I didn't either. I thought when I was watching the movie, the scene when uh, we're at the Lawrence home in London and the police uh, there are talk. the London police are talking to him. Uh, he goes over and he, he delivers drinks, tea or whatever, to some of the police officers that are in the room. And I thought maybe one of those guys was Alfred Hitchcock because he was kind of a bigger guy and balding. <laughs> so I uh, I thought that might be him, but it wasn't, I guess. It, I guess he was on a street, walking across the street, similar to where, where we've seen him in other cameos. But yeah, I wasn't sure if that was just an American movie thing or if he'd been doing that all along. Yeah, I, I don't know when that first started. Except for, yeah, he did it in, in 1934. So, yeah, you know, this this I had never seen this movie before. We are going to talk about the uh, Jimmy Stewart, Doris Day version of this uh, movie. That's going to be our next episode. And it'll be interesting to, to watch that movie again and compare it with this one. And we can talk all about the, the things that were similar and things that were different. I think think that'll be a lot of fun. I wasn't looking to do another Hitchcock. So, you know, we just did Marnie a few episodes ago. But you had had this uh, from the library to watch it. And so we wanted to, you you had to return it. So we thought, oh, we'll jump on that and watch The Man Who Knew Too Much. And uh, so that's what what we're doing. (laughs) That's why we're doing this uh, so soon after Marnie. Not not that it, it matters, I mean. I think, like we've said before, we could both do a just an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Yeah, he made over 50 movies. We could do this for years and years and never exhaust <laughs> all the Hitchcock films. Last year, I was talking to you uh, that I wanted to do... Oh, gosh, I can't even remember what it was called. There was a movie that he did uh, when he first came to... Was it Jamaica Inn? Yeah, I wanted to see Jamaica Inn, and I don't even remember why. But it was one of those that was on that disc I got from the library. Jamaica Inn, 
uh, was after he had already come to America, 39. It's got Charles Lawton in it. You said Lady Vanishes was the last British film, right? Right. Lady Vanishes is great. So we'll we'll eventually, I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but we'll we'll definitely get to more Alfred Hitchcock after next episode. Um but we'll we'll probably take a little break. Um but yeah, he's it, it's a lot of fun to to catch up on these and see all these movies. Once again, we've managed to talk um, about a movie longer than I thought we'd be able to, but I think this one since it was so short, uh we're able to go into a pretty deep dive on on the details of what was going on. We pretty much went through the whole thing, but with a movie this size, it's it's easy to do that. So we'll be back next time talking about uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956. In the meantime, you can always get a hold of us here at the podcast, either by sending an email to journeyintopodcast at gmail.com. Or calling the voicemail line at 77JINTO107. Uh, it's Journey Into on Twitter and on Facebook. And you can always uh, catch more stuff over on the Patreon where there's extra episodes there. And uh, these episodes come out uh, early on Patreon. To get there, you can go to patreon.com slash journeyinto. Just for a dollar a month, you can get a lot of fun stuff. I'd always appreciate your support over there. And uh, Rish, you have a Patreon as well. It's the same thing, but for my podcast, uh, The Rish Outcast, both of us do Patreon addresses every month and uh, little bonus things. And it's just uh, a really nice way that somebody can support us and encourage us and ensure that we keep doing these things. But uh, yeah, both of us really appreciate the people that support us. And you have quite a backlog of your stories that you've narrated, uh, well, written and then narrated on the show. And so there's there's a whole bunch of great fiction over there on your Patreon. Uh, so so thanks for joining us here on the on another outfield excursion. And uh, we'll let you go for now. But we'll, like I said, we'll be back with uh, the next incarnation of this movie. I will see you then. Thank you, Marshall. Thanks, Rish. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Good night. Yes, maybe I should have said something like, I have been Rish Outfield, the man who knew nothing whatsoever. <laughs> Outfield Excursions are produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. You can share it, my friend, to when, how, and where you are pleased to have it shared. Yes? However, you cannot change it or sell it. If you do, you may find yourself leaving us for a long time long journey. How is it that Shakespeare says, from which no traveler returns? Great poet.
He was terrified because he knew just a smattering of English, which he had used in his job as a bank teller. Well, he knew that Hitchcock loved to tell stories, so he let Hitchcock become a raconteur, and he simply re reacted with laughter. And Hitchcock got the idea that he understood, was following the story, and that he obviously spoke English. Laurie later referred to himself as the man who didn't know too much English. He stayed up late night drinking black coffee, at first parroting his lines, but later learning their meaning and in infusing them with, with nuances that told people that he had a real grasp on the role. Good evening.